Hey, I'm Corey. This is the official tape. So we're going to be slipping into the fill zone and we're going to be diving in deep, talking with the owner of Bases, which were played by Phil Lesh. Jason Scherner, and I am the artist liaison at Telefunken Electroacoustic Microphones. Now, as a producer's note, sometimes people that you interview, they can get burned out. But when I spoke with Jason for two hours, he was as fresh at the end of our talk as he was when we started. I have always been told that Grateful Dead music and the topics are for people with long attention spans. We cover a lot, sort of an auditory table of contents. Uh, towards the end of this piece, he gives a very detailed timeline of Osiris, uh, a.k.a. Mission Control. He talks about acquiring the instrument and the restoration process. Those stories were really entertaining and, and too good to edit out. But before that, you hear Jason talk about his strange love with Phil's bass guitars and how he loved the Phil Lesh bass bomb. My dad always taught me as a kid, with things like this, you don't really own it. You just purchase the right to possess it and take care of it for a little while. You're really just its custodian. Your duty is to the, the object itself and to future generations. So that's why it's been important to me to get the restoration just exactly perfect and to gather as much information as I can because one day it's going to move on and when it does i want to make sure that it's in its proper context because it's such a significant instrument i mean deadheads have heard it so many times when i started to really dig into this and think about and go back and listen to just years and years and years worth of some of the absolute best stuff the band ever played and just the, the way that you want to wrap your arms around the bass tone in, in those years. It's a magical experience. I've had a ton of people and friends express to me their experience with that instrument, whether it be, I got to hear the wall of sound, or I remember the first guy who turned me on to my first Grateful Dead tape, and I listened to that Scarlet Fire from Cornell, and it's just incredibly positive and wonderful to get that type of feedback, and then to be able to put the instrument back on stage and let people hear it and vibe with it again. It's just cool. It's just fun, you know? It's the way it's supposed to be happening. It's why it belongs in the hands of somebody who's actually a deadhead. That's how we feel about it. The mission control base was being built at Alembic at the same time that Wolf was being built for Garcia by Doug Irwin. And Doug had just left basically to go out on his own and there were still very strong ties there. So both of those instruments were built for the wall of sound, but the Osiris base was actually built to be really interactive with it. A lot of those things were not, were not done very often or explored fully, but the, the concepts were there. 
And I think the reason that it got the nickname Mission Control was that he had so much ability right there on the base with the knobs and the filters and the buttons, did the switching of what pickup and what string went to what column and, and so on and so forth, that the fans would see him interact with the instrument and hear things happen in the wall. I guess it came across as mission control for the wall of sound. Its ability to interact with the wall and its complexity is certainly more involved than Wolf, but they're both supreme instruments. When I spoke to George Mundy, who built the original electronics for the Mission Control base, he was the one who actually said, what do you mean Mission Control? You mean Osiris? He said, yeah, Phil and, and the band and crew, we, we always called it Osiris. I guess the, the Deadheads came up with the name Mission Control. But he explained to me that the concept of what was going on with the electronics to a certain extent uh, and he was the one who said to me, it's a six-channel bass. Um, and I said, okay, I understand. And what that meant was you had your neck pickup and you had your bridge pickup, and they could be accessed individually or, or mixed. And then with the quad pickup, you had an individual output for each string. What you could do with that, there's all kinds of things you could do with it. You could stereo pan the four strings. So that when there's some strumming, it goes across. You could do all kinds of different things. It would depend on what the musician and, and the sound guy wanted to try to accomplish with it. Now, what I have found out is that Phil did not use the quad pickup a lot. A lot of the things that he envisioned doing, he didn't actually do, especially with the Grateful Dead. Now, apparently he did some, but it was when he did the Phil and Ned sets that they would really play around with the quad pickup. And the buttons that you see on the top, or as some people would call it the face of the guitar, but the technical term would be the top of the guitar, there's 10 round buttons. And those buttons uh, did different things where it would send this pickup to this portion of the wall or this string to this portion of the wall and so on and so forth. And there were those different presets. So he could hit this button and things would go to these places and he could hit this button and things would go to these places. But uh, there are some good examples of that stuff with the Phil and Ned. Uh, and then there are apparently, if you dig deep enough, there are a few times that Phil did play around with it while the Grateful Dead were playing. But on some levels, I think it was something that they were experimenting with because other rock and roll bands like The Who and Pink Floyd were experimenting with it. So I think that's how it, it sort of came to be. What George Mundy said to me, which he's a very interesting guy. I was very, very pleased that they put me in touch with him. He said to me, when Osiris was around, Osiris was king. And I thought that was pretty interesting. And I have scoured photographs and videos and as much information as I can find. 
And although I do see big brown surface occasionally during the period that Osiris was Phil's number one axe, it's not very often. From what I can gather, it was because some of the electronics inside the Osiris were sort of finicky and sometimes it would need some service. And so I guess that's why you have a backup. But the instrument itself, from what I can gather, it was played for a longer period by Phil than any other instrument that he played with the Grateful Dead. Uh, through a period that a lot of people consider to be, if not their best, certainly among their best. It's an incredible instrument to this day. It, it was built uh, at a level that is still shocking to me. It's not as heavy as people would think uh, because the body is mostly hollow. And uh, I know it was heavier then than it is now because the electronics that were in it originally were heavier. The Osiris bass was started in 1972 and finished in 1974. It was a complex instrument to build. There was a lot of inlay work. There was the electronics apparently took a long time. Just on the electronics, apparently it was in excess of $30,000, which in 1972, 73 was a lot of money. Um, the electronics and the rest of the instrument were built by different folks. But there are LEDs in the neck that were put in there in 19, at whatever point during its construction between 1972 and 1974, and they still work. Rick tells me that the first was a 12-string guitar that was built for David Crosby in 1970. And he tells me those LEDs still work. If you really take a look back, what it was, is it was the beginning of custom and boutique instruments. When you go back and you look at vintage instruments and you see old Tellys and Strats and Gibsons, they're not made like this. They're not neck through instruments. They don't have the construction that has now lovingly been referred to by, in the industry as the hippie sandwich, which means taking layers of exotic woods for very particular reasons in combinations, gluing them together, layering them together, and crafting together instruments in a way that is completely different than anybody was doing at the time. Neck through instruments were basically unheard of. Instruments that were made with sandwiching these layers of material, this type of construction, completely unheard of. Now, there had been inlays of all kinds, of course, for a long time, and the inlays are interesting and exotic. But when you look at what custom exotic builders are doing now, these multi-wood, multi-layer, multi-laminate, neck-through designs, all goes back to these early, early, early instruments made by Rick and by Alembic and by Doug and folks like that. And, and now there's a gazillion companies out there that are doing this type of thing as far as the basic construction of it with their own flair. And there's so many companies out there and it's been so long since this has all been evolving 
that most of these guys don't even know what their lineage is or who they owe their lineage to. You got to keep in mind that a lot of this stuff comes from the same tree. The mission control base was being built at Alembic at the same time that Wolf was being built for Garcia by Doug Irwin. Now, Rick Turner, who was the first main luthier at Alembic, I think Rick told me Doug was his third apprentice at Alembic. And he taught Doug a lot of the things that he knew. And then Doug sort of went in his own direction uh, from there. That Doug Irwin, although he brought a, a ton to the table on his own and his skill and vision as a craftsman are absolutely spectacular. But if you look at Doug's early work, it's all very Alembic influenced. And even the Wolf guitar, if you see the pictures of it from 73 before the headstock got broken and Doug put the Eagle logo on it, originally it had a peacock on the headstock and underneath the peacock was an Alembic logo. And on the Doug Irwin number one, the guitar known as the Eagle that sold at auction in 2007, that guitar has an Alembic logo on the back. The relationship uh, that Doug had to Alembic was very, very strong early on. And uh, Rick taught Doug, I, I think, quite a bit. But there was this whole idea, again, from this idea, like, look at, at Phil's Big Brown. Um, he said, okay, let's try this cool, hollow body, guild, starfire bass. And then they wound up just modifying it to extremes. And then they said, okay, let's do something from the ground up. Let's do something from scratch which was the Osiris base, uh, no, you know, known as Mission Control. What I do know is that the knobs on Big Brown and the knobs on Mission Control, they do the same thing. And I know that the extra knob is, is somehow, that function is somehow covered on another knob with Mission Control, but they're basically the same filter system. Uh, one's probably a little bit, or, or at the time, it was a little bit more refined than the next. And now what that's developed into is the super filter. And the way that it was sort of explained to me, the original concept for all those electronics all came from Ron Wickersham at Alembic. And I am not an electrical engineer, so all that stuff's way over my head. But it, it essentially had to do from what I understand early on with a filter system that would allow you to make an instrument sound like other instruments. Hence the explanation that George Mundy gives in the Grateful Dead movie, this bass has the sound of you know, many great basses. And the filter allowed you to approximate the sounds of different instruments. And that was the theory, but the way it happened sort of in practice was instead of imitating a particular instrument, you would just dial it in until you got a sound that you wanted. And it had early principles that even predate the parametric EQ. Um, so it was 
really what it was designed to do was to give the musician more freedom. Uh, what George Mundy told me was, instead of having to have Phil turn around his rack and lose his connection with the band and the audience to make an adjustment, everything he needed was right there on the instrument. And once you become familiar with it, it becomes second nature to make those changes and not lose your flow. I am not a musician. So some of that's lost on me, but I totally get it. Rick told me the story. I got it from the horse's mouth, but he told me that he ran into Les Paul and he told Les Paul about this radical instrument that he had built for Phil. And Les Paul said, I really want to see it. And he said, well, great, come down and I'll show it to you. And he put him on the guest list. And everybody in the band and crew thought that Rick was just joking, that he was just messing with everybody and just put Les Paul on the guest list, just like he would, you know, maybe put, you know, Elvis on the guest list or, you know, somebody else, you know, like that. So nobody really thought anything of it until he showed up. and wanted to see the instrument. And Rick pulled the, the back panels off. And another interesting thing about the construction is the back panels come completely off and give you total exposure to everything inside to be able to work on it. Absolutely ingenious. You can see it in the Grateful Dead movie when it's on stage and they're working on it. They have the back panels opened up and you can see all the guts and how accessible everything is. So he opened it up and showed him everything. And he said Les Paul was absolutely enamored with it and just thought it was the coolest, most wonderful thing. And yes, I have sat there and held it in my hands and looked at it and thought about that story in my head and, and sort of played it over as best I can with my own imagery in my head. It's pretty fun. Phil's been pretty good about holding on to his instruments. He has a huge collection of basses. In fact, there's pictures that Jay Blakesburg took uh, years ago that are great, that have Phil, uh, one of them just sitting around a bunch of basses, and then another one with a ton of them just laid out on, on the floor. And I don't think that's all of them either. But a couple of them have gotten out, and um, some of the nicest ones. From what I can gather, only a handful of Phil's basses have ever gotten away from Phil. Uh, I know that there was the all-natural Fender bass that he played in the very early 80s uh, that I, I heard something about you know, him saying that it had disappeared or something like that. Uh, I know that the very first Ken Smith had the same basic fate as the Osiris and wound up put into storage and it got sold after a default. The Mission Control bass was played on stage from 1674 through 7179. Uh, sometime around 1981, this guy Tom Smith, who worked for Phil, I don't know what Phil and Tom discussed. I don't know how much Phil knew about what he was going to do. That much, I, I just don't know. But he was granted permission to do whatever he did 
and he routed a hole in the base in the top. He took out some of this top wood that was around where the pickups were, and he put in a aluminum receptacle plate that allowed you to use different tailpiece and bridge configurations. And toward the very end of its stage career, uh, like around late 1978, I believe, they took off the original bridge, Phil and the Grateful Dead took off the original bridge, and they put on a, a bridge known as a badass bridge. They're out there. They're in production. At first, they put it on there, and they put a little plate behind it. You see it in pictures. And then after that, they took off that little plate and they added a little tailpiece configuration. And that's the way it was when he stopped playing it in 1979. So all that stuff was taken out. And uh, there's conjecture that, that because he had played around with the bridge and tailpiece, that they decided that they were going to create a little test bed to be able to do this sort of thing. Why you would use the most illustrious, most exotic, most spectacular base ever built to do that is beyond me, but they did. And everybody always says, hey, you got to remember what it was like in those days. Okay. So that happened. Then at a certain point, Tom Smith decided, okay, I'm not going to work on this anymore. Phil's going to play six string basses or whatever it was. He decided he wasn't going to work on it. And he took the bass and all the associated parts minus the two pickups that he had traded and put them, according to him, into equipment room four at the Front Street studio. It all sat there until 1995 when Garcia died and they moved out of that building. And at that point, one of the crew took the base and took it to a storage location in Windsor, California. And it sat in Windsor, California in storage from 1995 until somewhere between 2012 and 2014, at which time the payment stopped happening on the storage. It went into default. It got sold to a salvage company. The salvage company sold the base to George Gruen at Gruen Guitars in Nashville. And they sat on it for a little while and then they began a restoration, which took quite some time because there was so much research involved in their restoration. And they got it finished and they let a band in Nashville play it. And that's when I found out that it was finished. And I had spoken to George about it a few years previous but I found out it was finished. And what happened was when I reached out to George about the, the base, he told me it wasn't for sale, that Jim Ursay was going to buy it. Apparently, he was supposed to buy this base, and I got it, I got it away from him. You know, he's, he's bought up a lot of stuff. I've never met a single deadhead who's like, oh, the guy who owns the Colts has Jerry's Tiger guitar? Oh, that's fantastic. I have heard people say, is he a deadhead? And other people say no. And then, then people just kind of grumble a little bit, you know. Then I get a phone call from this guy. And the guy says, Hi, I am representing Gruen Guitars with the Mission Control Base. And I was like, huh? And he said, yeah, um, I've been hired by Gruen Guitars to sell the Mission Control Base. 
And I said, I thought George was going to sell this thing to Jim Ursay. And now you keep in mind here, this is what I was told. I don't know any of this for an absolute fact. I'll tell you what I, what I was told and what my perspective was, okay? Just to be clear. He said, yeah. I've sold instruments to Jim Ursay in the past, and he is still interested in buying this instrument and very likely uh, going to be the purchaser. Uh, but I wanted to see if you were interested. I was like, well, what's going on? Why don't you explain to me how this, how this is all, how this makes sense? And he said, we gave Jim an asking price. He said he was fine with the price, but he needed a formal appraisal. So we went to Warwick Stone and had him do an appraisal. And Warwick is maybe the number one memorabilia guy in the world. So it took him almost a month to put together an appraisal. And by the way, his appraisal never gets out of 1974. And... He said, so when we went back to Jim with the appraisal, it had taken so long for us to get back to him and we had put him off for a while. So he decided he was going to put us off for a while. So we are supposed to speak to him in the relatively near future whenever he can conveniently get around to it. And I said, so you're trying to sell it out from under him in the meantime? And he said, yes, I am. I said, is this because you're going to lose your contract with Gruen? Or because you want to prove to Jim not to put you off in, in the future? And he said, a little of both. And I said, okay, um, I will negotiate with you guys on this, but I'm not going to be used to leverage more money out of a billionaire. Uh, you and George and myself and George's son-in-law who runs the business over there, we can all get on the phone together. And we can have a negotiation. And at the end of that negotiation, I'll either own the base or my offer will be completely off the table. You will not use my, my offer or my final position or whatever you want to call it to negotiate more money from somebody else. And uh, it took quite some doing to make that happen because he did not want to do that under any circumstances. But it was the only way I would continue. And I knew George, and I called George and told him it was the only way I would consider doing this. So we all got on the phone, and we had the negotiation, and, and, uh, and I bought the base. They called me back after the fact and told me that he was very upset. And I said, you know, I, I could really care less. Do you think you might be interested in selling it to him um, for, for, you know, closer, closer to the appraisal price? And I said, no. Now, I don't know if any of that was genuine or not. I don't know if that was a smokescreen or not. Um, and I don't much care. I had just gotten the instrument. I had had it, I don't know, certainly less than a month. And I was doing research, lots and lots of research and looking in, in different places and doing different searches. And I'm not even sure how I found it, but I came across an old thread and the thread was 15 years old and nobody had posted on it in over 10 years. And it was actually a combination of 
message board where they were sort of pasting stuff back and forth. And I found this thread and I found this post and it said, I know a guy who knows a guy and that guy knows the guy who got the original neck and bridge pickups from the guy known as Turbo Tom Smith, who worked for Phil and was the guy who uh, modified the bass after Phil stopped playing it. And when he modified it, he removed the original neck and bridge and quad pickups from the bass. And the thread talked about this guy knowing a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who had um, had gotten these pickups in 1981 or two, I believe. I have to go back and look at my notes. Right around that time. So I go and I follow further along and, and plod through this. And another post pops up and a guy says, hi, I am the guy who the guy knows who knows the guy who traded for the pickups from Tom Smith. And I thought, man, I got to find this guy. This guy's name was Fred Hammond. Got to call out little Fred. Wonderful, wonderful guy. So I said, I got to find this guy, Fred Hammond. So I go looking for Fred and eventually I find Fred. And I say to Fred, Fred, do you know the guy who has the pickups from the mission control base? And he said, that's me. I'm the guy who, who knows the guy who was known by the other guy, except that guy doesn't have the pickups anymore. I have them. I said, you do? And he said, yes, I had a company called Dark Star Pickups and we made pickups that were like the ones that were put into Phil's Guild Starfire bases and had that early Grateful Dead Phil tone. And the guy who had the pickups decided I should have them, not him. And he sent them to me a long time ago. I said, well, I'm the guy who's got the base. Do you think I could get those pickups from you? And Fred said, you have the base. And I said, I do. And he said, yes, you can have the pickups. And he gave them to me uh, freely and openly. He said, they belong in the base. I didn't pay for them. Guy gave them to me and this is why and they belong with you. And um, we did something for him to show our gratitude. We had a, an instrument that he was, that was his favorite instrument that had become unplayable over the years. We had it restored to better than new for him, uh, just for being a wonderful guy and a great deadhead and just a all around swell human being. So yeah, we got the original pickups. It's with Rick Turner. He had to create correct historically accurate hum canceling coils that go in the, the center pickup position. It looks like a center pickup, but it's not it's hum canceling coils. He had to create that. 
He's creating a new historically accurate quad pickup. And he also created a historically accurate one-off uh, of the original bat wing tailpiece. Those items are being installed into and onto the base to finish the, the final steps of the, the restoration. Can't wait to hear it, let me tell you. Once we got the base, known the guys from Darkstar for a long time. We love those guys and they've always been really wonderful to us. They were an obvious choice as far as bringing it out and letting it be heard again. It, it was just the next thing that really made sense. They played uh, 22677 from the Swing Auditorium in San Bernardino. It's funny, uh, my girlfriend and I had been discussing the week before, we wondered what they would play, didn't want to have any input on what they would play, just wanted to let them do what they wanted. But we had listened to that show a few times and I kept saying what a perfect show it would be for them to play with that instrument. And sure enough, that was what they played. And it was fantastic. And then um, we also went up and saw them the next night in LA. And they said they had so much fun with the bass, they wanted to build a set list around it. So they made up their own set list the second night in, in LA. And uh, that was also quite a bit of fun. I'll always sort of preface things and say, I do not presume or claim that this stuff's 100% accurate, but generally it's pretty close. So I know Phil's first bass was a, a Gibson EBO. Early on, there were a few different Gibson sort of SG body shape style basses uh, that were uh, mostly, I think, EBOs. Uh, one that got modified and then stolen, and, there one, and that one got painted. There was some some of that style. Then he switched over to the Guild Starfires, and then Alembic modified mostly Rick Turner the big red Guild Starfire known as Big Red, and uh, they stripped it and did a, a ton of things to it it became known as Big Brown. I played Big Brown for the very early 70s. He started to play the bass known as Mission Control, which the band and crew actually called Osiris. Rick at uh, Alembic started making this thing at the location that they called the Chicken, the chicken Ranch uh, in 1972. Uh, it was played on stage from six, 1674 through 7179, and it was occasionally spelled by Big Brown. Then he went back to Big Brown very briefly. Then he played a couple of, there was a Fender bass, and, and then I think there were a couple Fender style basses. I think that's when he played the G&Ls. He continued to play four strings for a short time, and then he started to play modulus six string basses, but with very tight string spacing and a fairly narrow neck for a six string bass. And he played, I believe just about all, if not all, mostly modulus basses. 
The guy who founded Modulus, uh, Jeff Gould, as I believe he actually had something to do when he was started out at Alembic. And the idea, the whole concept of the, the neck through and these really hard, stiff uh, woods and materials to use in, in necks and how that, that did a lot of wonderful things for the instrument. Um, you know, for instance, the, with the, the mission control base, the, the, a lot of the Olympic folks call it the Osage because it's made with Osage orange as the largest chunks of wood in the, in the neck through portion of the base. And that stuff is hard as a rock. Uh, in certain parts of the country, they call it bodark. But if you ever get a piece of Osage orange wood or bodark wood, it, it's like, it looks like, it feels like rock and it looks like wood. Um, so the idea was to make the stiffest, strongest possible necks that you, you could conceivably make. And that was the whole concept behind Modulus and making those, those graphite necks. Um, from what I understand, the biggest issue is the efficiency in, in making them. Their, their, their process is very, very painstaking and, and expensive. But they make cool stuff. I mean, really cool stuff. And he played, I believe, just about all, if not all, mostly modulus basses up until December 27, 1989, when he got his first custom Ken Smith six-string bass. And what's significant about that is that it was the first time that it had really wide string spacing and a much wider fingerboard. Think of it like taking a four-lane highway and painting six lanes on it uh, and how tight the lanes are versus going and building a full six-lane highway that's actually built uh, for that purpose. And since he made that change, every bass that he's played has basically followed that layout of a, a wider fingerboard and wider string spacing. Ken Smith, a Ken Smith bass is like a Rolls Royce. I mean, when you look at the, the, the brands of basses that Bill's played over the years, modulus are very nice instruments, very nice. Uh, but when you look at the, the bass world and, and how they view boutique bass builders out there, uh, Alembic and Ken Smith are always going to be at the very tip top of that of that list. And I think over the years of all the stuff that Phil played with the Grateful Dead, the the Ken Smith basses, especially the first custom one, and uh, the, the the Mission Control Osiris, you know, bass, uh, tough to find anything that that was you know more more exotic, more, uh, you know, in that category of Rolls Royce or Lamborghini. He played uh, first Ken Smith until uh, June 17th, 90. Or then um, he played a modulus prototype uh, that uh, Rich Hogue, at, who was at Modulus at the time, told me we were trading some Facebook posts and he told me that the Ken Smith was what motivated modulus to move toward the q series wide body basses and he played a prototype uh, for let's see from 62390 until brent's last show 72390 
And then he went back to a second Ken Smith bass that he played for, uh, I think four, somewhere between four, five, six, seven shows, somewhere around that many, starting on uh, September 7th, 1990. And then somewhere between the 14th and the 19th of September, 1990, switched to another Ken Smith bass, which he proceeded to play until 9991 at Madison Square Garden. Then he went back to Modulus, a wide body Q series bass on 91091, the Brantford show at MSG, and played Modulus wide body basses until the end of the Grateful Dead. Uh, then he played it. He played those weird Ritter basses for a while. Played some modulus basses for a while, and then about five years ago went back and started playing alembics again. And the one that he has now is not actually one; it's three. They're all identical except they have different scale lengths. That's what I know about the Phil Lesh bass timeline, and I'm definitely missing uh, some chunks. I don't know that anybody's got one that's totally complete as of yet, like there is for the most part on Garcia's guitars. What I went and got was all the information that I wanted that wasn't readily available. And the truth is, if you dig around, it's all there. And and I had lots to help. I had I had Rick Turner, I had Micah at Alembic, I had, you know, Stu Nixon from Dead Base, and all kinds of people that I could, you know, and and also Andy Logan's a good buddy of mine and, and we have a little group, you know, me and Andy and Zach uh, Nugent and, and Alex Jordan and, and Nate from Cubensis. We have a little, you know, absolute psychopath nerd gear group and we sit around and discuss stuff and find information. And there's a couple of guys online uh, who are fanatical about collecting pictures and dates and they've been helpful. Um, so it's been, uh, it's been a process, but that's what our community is all about too. I mean, you remember the stat sheets? You remember going into Grateful Dead shows and sitting down before the show started? We didn't have phones to look at, right? But, but they, if anybody passed out those sheets that had all the set lists from the tour and on one side and then all the stats from the other, the whole place would go silent. You just see a whole row of, of hippies with their feet up on the seats in front of them all with, with the sheet. And if there wasn't enough sheets, there'd be one guy leaning over looking at the sheet waiting for him to finish so he could hand it over. So we're just that way. I keep all of this stuff organic. Um, I, I, I glanced at, at my timeline, but beyond that, I'm just sitting here hanging out with my girlfriend, uh, you know, looking at our leftover pizza from lunch in the kitchen thinking about dinner. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You made this very, very easy. You do a good job.